Hello, my name is Juan de Castro and you're listening to Making Risk Flow. Every episode, I sit down with my industry-leading guests to demystify digital risk flows, share practical knowledge, and help you use them to unlock scalability in commercial insurance. A few weeks ago, I attended ITC in Vegas. ITC is the largest insurance technology conference in the world with over 5,000 attendees between insurance companies, MGAs, reinsurers, brokers, and technology providers. One of the hot topics this year was cyber. Cyber is a fast evolving line of business with growing demand for cyber protection, while at the same time facing profitability challenges and rates going up, uh, supply going down. This perfect storm represents significant challenges for underwriters as they're swamped with high submission volumes, often quite complex. And what we hear from most underwriters is that they don't have capacity to process all the submissions they receive, let alone are able to spot the good risks. It's pretty much like finding a needle in a haystack type of environment. In this episode, I chat with Roman from AtBay and Jay from Arch, and we discuss their views on how they are solving these challenges and their vision to win in this line of business. I'm Juan, I'm the COO at Saitora, been in the company for a couple of years, joined from Hiscox, where I was their COO in the UK, so recently moved from Carrier to InsureTech. In a nutshell, Saitora enables kind of traditional carriers to operate much more like a digital native cyber insurer. So we are line of business agnostic, so we operate across all property liability lines, but we are quite deep into cyber. So our platform, what it does is ingests broker submissions, evaluates the risk, enables insurers to enrich the risks with external data. I think we've got a great panel today because we've got Roman from AdBay, so digital native, cyber MGA, and then we've got Jay from Arch, which is the kind of a more traditional insurer, but you're doing a lot of interesting things in cyber underwriting. So should we start with a brief introduction? Jay, do you want to go first? Hi, everyone. I'm Jay Rajendra. I'm Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer for Arch Capital Group. Arch is an $18 billion multinational insurer and reinsurer. And part of my job is being responsible for embedding data science, digital distribution, and automation into our global underwriting activities. Roman? Hi guys, I'm uh, Roman Itzkovic. I'm co-founder at AdBay. AdBay is a cyber MGA. We underwrite cyber risk for companies in the US. And we also provide security services, which for us is a core part of the value proposition to help businesses stay safe, regardless of coverage. And at AdBay, I oversee our insurance products risk analytics, modeling, everything that goes into understanding, you know, what the risk is and how do you provide a good service while being profitable on the insurance side. Thank you. They touched on this in the previous session, like on where is the cyber industry right now, but it would be helpful just spend a couple of minutes there to set the scene for the rest of the discussion. So if you want to start perhaps, Roman, with kind of how do you see the cyber industry today? What are some of the opportunities and challenges? Sure, happy to. And look, we're, this panel is about profitable growth and cyber. So if we take the profitability lens, cyber was incredibly profitable six, seven years ago. Everyone thought, you know, let's do more of it. There's no risk. This is printing money. 19 and 20 were years that proved, I think, that that's not how it works. So profitability went down. And today we're in a place where prices went up significantly. Coverage was restricted significantly. 
we see the industry coming back to profitability. So reinsurers are happier, carriers are happier. The product to customers is now worse because customers are paying more. That said, I think that the industry also is starting to recognize much more the thesis that we have, which is you can't do just cyber insurance. You have to bundle it with risk mitigation as a way to create sustainability and service for the insured, but also to reduce the volatility of the line from the capital provider standpoint. So we are at a stage where we have some recognition of that. A small part of the market is pursuing those strategies. So we and other MGAs are pretty keen on this part, but most of the market is still not, not doing it. And there's a bit more of comfort now because just the prices are up. And when prices are up, everyone on the capital side is happy. So that's what I would say. And Jay, you and I were talking about this earlier, which is, I think this cycle of profitable line of business everybody getting to the line of business, then insurers starting to pull out or there's some fear in the market, prices going up. We've seen this before in other lines of business. And I think you made an interesting reflection. I think you're right. So in many ways, what we're seeing right now is in response to two things. So one is this increasing ransomware claims that Robert mentioned 2019 to 2020, which hit a lot of incumbents and a lot of other people who were ranked cyber in a fairly primitive ways. And then secondly, a lot of these kind of headline grabbing claims and hacks you know, for large companies, whether it be Capital One, most recently Uber, and all of that basically challenges some of the kind of conventional orthodoxy of the view of how we're assessing cyber risk in the industry. And we've seen that before. It's not the first time, and I think it's most similar to what happened in Property Cat in 1992 following Hurricane Andrew. The industry hadn't seen a hurricane that big hit Florida. You know, in today's terms, it would probably be a $100 billion event, and it made people realize back then that the simple models and assumptions that they were using to assess their hurricane risk weren't adequate. Right? And the same thing is happening in cyber right, right now. But what happened back then is the same thing that we're seeing right now, which is that insurers and reinsurers got scared. They pulled back on capacity, so supply goes down. And at the same time, insureds and insurers realize just how much exposure they have to hurricane risk. Um, so demand went up. So you got supply coming down, demand going up, and you get that prototypical hard market. And that's what we're seeing right now in cyber. Yeah, these type of analogies always help a lot to understand, okay, we don't need to reimagine the future. And we've seen this in a number of lines of business. So using the same analogy, what do you think are the implications in the way cyber is underwritten in the next few years? Yeah, so I think it can be very similar. If we look back at what, what happened back then, is the insurers and reinsurers moved away from these kind of simple models, simple assumptions, simple ways of understanding risk, and developed much more sophisticated models, models that looked at how well buildings were protected and what their vulnerabilities would be to a hurricane. And that's exactly what we're doing right now in cyber. That's what everyone has now realized we have to do in cyber, which is to look at an account and look at risk and understand what protections it has in place from cyber risk and what its vulnerabilities are to an attack. That could be obviously MFA, multi-factor authentication. It could be uh, patch and vulnerability management. It could be uh, security and encryption. It could be EDR, right, endpoint detection and response. So all of these different technologies and tools and capabilities are now standard as an understanding of, of how you appreciate cyber risk. So it's an evolution towards a much more data-driven cyber underwriting. And this is part of your core vision. Robert. Yeah, and look, I, I think that's, that's absolutely true. I think that the main uh, difference, though, from NatCat, from our standpoint, is 
You know, NatCat is where you get more information, you build your portfolio ideally with better, better risks, and you diversify it so that one event doesn't, doesn't hit the whole portfolio. And then you did that before hurricane season, and then you leave the portfolio, go to pray during hurricane <laughs> season, and then once it's over, you kind of count your losses and try to price better for next year and build a better portfolio for next year. So the view is kind of static as the event unfolds, right? I think in cyber, what we're saying and, and doing is we, we call it active cat management, which is you try to identify events where will have significant disruption in the portfolio, and then you actively try to manage them. So the metaphor you should think about is a pandemic, right? So when COVID broke, everyone in the world were vulnerable, but not everyone was sick, right? And it takes time for the, for the virus to spread, and you can do things, right? You can wear masks, you can stop international travel, you can develop vaccines, so that even if there's a wide vulnerability, eventually less people get sick because you use the time to prepare. And we see a very similar dynamic with cyber, where as events start, we can develop detection capabilities and work with companies through this active engagement to contain it. And I think that that's something that we, it's pretty new in the industry. It requires some capabilities that are more difficult. It's not only the data, it's also the relationship with the insured, the ability to respond, uh, knowing what to prioritize and knowing to foresee attacker tactics. But I think that that's the main difference, which kind of gives me hope that as this becomes more standard, you know, we are going to be less worried about cat and cyber and have proactive ways to manage it. And I think that that point about active risk management, I think we, again, I remember when I was back at Hiscox, we, it was not NatCat, but it was for our personal lines, we said, okay, the, the biggest source of loss is water leak in household, okay, so to actively manage that, we're going to send our clients a device that detects water leaks, etc. And, and to some extent, it was a, a failure of an initiative, and I think because it did require clients to be actively mitigate or managing the risk. I think the approach you're describing, actually, you do that active management yourself. So you're not imposing active management from yeah. the client, right? Yeah, yes, um, but I think, I think there is an important point that, that Jay here mentioned, which is the market is hard, there is more demand. And when there is more demand, so you, you're, as an insured, you're trying to buy insurance, it's difficult. You are asked to do all those controls. You know, one of the things we ask our insureds is to be responsive to this type of an engagement. And again, if capacity was widespread and you can, you don't need to do anything, like back in 2015, you know, you have a name of business, here's your coverage, no questions asked, and it's cheap, that's very hard to do. Now, today we're in a different world where I think there is a much bigger recognition of the importance of cyber controls and also a lot more motivation driven by insurance terms to actually do something about those controls. So I think that we are, as an insurer, we're fortunate to have a more open response to what we're asking. Okay, so perhaps now shifting gears towards more, what does the underwriting workflow look like, right? So we're talking about increased demand, more data. You and I, again, yesterday were talking about three levels of maturity of how cyber underwriting could look like, right? And I think you, you made a, a fantastic framework. I would ask you to share that. Um, sure. So I didn't invent anything, but uh, if I can, I, I tend to recommend books. So if, if you need to make automatic decisions anywhere, there's a really good book called The Army of None, which describes the uses of AI in military applications in the US military. And the way they think about it is there are basically three ways to make decisions, right, that could involve a machine as part of that process. There is a 
you know, human in the loop, meaning a human reviews and makes every decision. There is a human on the loop, which is a machine makes a decision, but there's close monitoring of what the decision is and improvement of the decision process. And there's a human outside of the loop, which is a machine does everything and maybe someone checks in once in a long while, right? And I think this is applicable to insurance because at insurance, traditionally, you know, we're used to one of two modes, right? Either an underwriter looks and makes every decision, which is a human in the loop situation, or there is a portfolio underwriting approach, and then we might review the results once every quarter or six months, which is a human outside of the loop. And in our view, especially for cyber, you want to be in the middle, right? You want to have machines making decisions, especially, you know, we're writing a lot of SMB risks. You know, there are we're seeing tens of thousands of submissions a month. We just can't humanly process them with a team. But on the flip side, because the risk might be volatile, you also don't want to have the machine run for weeks, making decisions with billions of dollars of exposure without any kind of concrete oversight. So this middle layer is, I think, is, is what's required to get comfort around and tools around to be able to actually run this automated flow for underwriting in cyber, but in other lines as well. Yeah, and I think that framework is really useful because the human in the loop, the basic level you described, is very much where traditional insurers are. And I think, I mean, we've discussed this, Jay, many times, which is underwriters being swamped with a volume of submissions, having to go one by one, difficulties to find the right, the, the good risk from all different from the bad risk. The human on the loop, I think, is, is your model, Roman, at bay. So I think that is an interesting framework to understand how, kind of how underwriting flows evolve. You are in a traditional insurer moving from yeah. human in the loop to human on the loop. Yeah. So how are you thinking about that? So for us, it really depends on where the, com- the complexity, I guess, of the risk. So we're, we think of ourselves as an underwriting company. And unlike the SMB portfolio that Roman's describing, in the cyberspace, both in the US and in London, we tend to operate in the mid to large account space. And there, we really are, it's more in the kind of, let's call it the human in the loop, and we're really focused on bringing best-in-class data and analytics capabilities to identify the best and the worst risks as soon as possible for our underwriters. So that includes bringing in external data, like vulnerability scanning and things like that. At the same time, even in that large account sector, we are seeing growing demand and higher volumes. So we're still investing in automation technologies and other things to strip out manual processes. And thirdly, just because the volumes of cyber that we write in Arch across all of our different entities, we're a very large and complex organization, is the investment in the total kind of risk management or portfolio management approach to understand our accumulations and our aggregations for cyber, just like we do for hurricane risk or any other kind of peril. So this is the point of view of many traditional insurers. It's like we are an underwriting organization. We yep. kind of want to check every risk, which is very fair, I think, in the large, in the large segments, right? But would you, Roman, challenge that? Because I think just to make it a bit controversial, right? It's like, I think the, the simple stuff, fully automated, the very large, absolutely underwriters want to look at it, but I think there's a huge mid-market. Yeah, maybe challenge is a strong word here because it's a question of where do you put the line? Yeah. Where I think if you are more digitally native and you feel more comfortable with machine decisions, you ask yourself, why do I have a human here? What value does a human add? And can I automate that? And that is, you know, traditional insurance, you would try to have more eyes on larger exposures. I don't think that that's going to change, but, you know, there's a question of what is a human ad that is important. And I think that, you know, the main difference I would presume is that I think that traditional carriers would put that line lower 
and because they would be more worried versus someone like us who put that line higher because we would ask ourselves, okay, so what does a human add? Do they add anything? And then in many cases, you would say, we're going to go higher. I will tell you that you know, we transact a lot with brokers, right? And I think you guys as well, everywhere. And there's an element of a negotiation and discussion and sales that goes into selling any insurance policy, and especially the larger ones, that I think is going to be very difficult to automate, right? Humans don't like to negotiate with machines. They find that to be frustrating. You want a human answering when you're asking questions. So besides very basic things that I think you can check, like, you know, when you choose a flight, choosing the time of flight, you don't need a human. But if you want to talk coverage, want to talk, you know, mitigating factors, there's a threshold there that is not necessarily only about value add on risk on underwriting. It's about the go-to-market and the relationship, which I think is the real barrier to fully automate the whole the whole stack. And I think that the way you summarize it, which I fully agree, is it's ensuring the underwriting capacity or the humans are deployed where it makes a difference, right? And I think that that is, I think also, Jay, you're thinking about it that way too. Even in the mid or large is you want an underwriter to make a final call, but how can you automate all the data collection, all the analysis of the submission? We have a very similar view. Like for us, it depends on the complexity of the risk and the size of the account is sometimes a proxy for that, but obviously not a good measure. But also how brokers or our partners want to access the business. Like that's like the ease of doing business piece of it. So if customers want to be access business digitally, which is zero touch and through API or whatever, then that's how we serve them. Whereas if customers want to have a broker experience talking to an underwriter, they want to visit the client, all that kind of stuff, then that's how we serve our clients that, that way. So. We're very comfortable with zero-touch underwriting. We do a billion dollars digitally via API, zero-touch across Arch. Very unusual for a traditional insurer, but we are like a very digitally kind of mature company. We've leaned into to digital. So perhaps question for you, Roman. In that model you've described, we're like highly automated, still human on the loop sometimes. Can you describe us that kind of underwriting workflow from a submission coming in into AdBay? What does it look like? Yeah, so you can access AdBay through email, through our platform, or through API, and the flow looks differently. Let's take the platform because that's the probably the most common flow. A broker would go in and on the platform, they would answer a few questions, mostly name of the business, revenue, industry, website, a few control questions, click a button and get a response within about 20, 25 seconds with a few quote options. Okay, so that's a very highly automated process. In the back end, we collect data from external sources. We run the, the machine, and the machine can underwrite the account. If the account has issues, red flags, it will be kicked out for a human review. So that's a separate flow, but that's kind of the basic flow. And the other thing we found, and by the way, to your comment earlier, is sometimes brokers want to access through email or through platform, but we find that you know sometimes Platform adoption requires a push, yeah. and once you're pushed there, you're happier that you are in that space. So for us, pushing brokers to interact more with our platform was to introduce, like for example, customization. So they get a few options if they want to change limits, retentions, add or reduce coverages, they can do that. Especially on the small risks, that is very, very valuable. But that's kind of how the flow works. And, and, and how do you push brokers to use that platform? Because in, in many other lines of business, 
well, I guess from a broker perspective, the broker doesn't want to input the risk information to your platform and 10 others to get 10 quotes. How do you do that? Oh, that's a great question. We just closed an acquisition of a business called Relay back in August. And Relay does exactly this. So what we found is that, you know, brokers to do their job need to provide a few quotes. So by design, if our platform only provides you one quote, they need to go and enter the details on a bunch of other platforms and get a bunch of other quotes. And there is what we call uh, platform fatigue, right? You just get tired of doing the same thing over and over again. Whereas some, a business like Relay allows them to enter the information once and then get quotes from a few markets, which is, in our view, the killer app. I mean, this is, I don't know about you, but I don't buy flights or hotels on the hotel chain website, I go to Kayak, it's exactly the same thing. And the reason for the acquisition is, is exactly this, is we want to make sure that brokers have the best service. We recognize that it doesn't matter how good our own platform is or how good the United website is, you would still go on Kayak because you want to see other options. That's the idea. So perhaps one final question. Where do you see the industry in the next three, five years? How are you thinking about winning in that environment that you were describing earlier? I question for both of you. So for us, across Arch, it's, it's really about deciding how we access business and how we serve our clients in different ways. So we write cyber in so many different parts. So one way is through MGAs. We have a lot of uh, partnerships and MGA partnerships. Coalition, we're just speaking for, they've been a really important partner for us over the last few years and we've helped support their growth. And there it's really about making sure that the, the companies that we partner with have the right tools and technologies to serve their customers and identify and underwrite risks in the right way in the cyber market. And that's been really useful for us in that SMB segment that Roman was talking about. In that mid to large account space where we're serving our brokers, we write, we have a underwriting teams, talented underwriting teams in both the US and the UK, and we're growing those and investing in the tools that they need more in that human in the loop kind of space that, that Roman was describing a minute ago. And then on our reinsurance business, so we, we reinsure lots of insurers and MGAs across Arch. And then again, it's really about assessing the capabilities that our sedents have and making sure they have the right tools and technologies. The last thing we have to do is to make sure across the whole of Arch that we've got a really good picture and understanding and a real Arch view of risk for cyber. And that we're thinking about it in just the way we would any other peril, just because it's a relatively new and immature risk, it, it still gets the same attention. And you, Roman? Well, I'll take a step back. I believe that cyber is the defining commercial risk of our time. I think that, you know, this is the number one worry for boards and CFOs and has been for the last few years. So in my view, there is no way this insurance line is going to grow significantly over the next few years. And I would also venture to say that if you're a primary carrier and you're not offering cyber as part of the bundle, you would be not relevant in I don't know, let's throw a number out there in five years. And because of that, the ability to underwrite cyber is incredibly important. I also think that, you know, CAT, this is a bigger and bigger part of carriers' exposures. And as long as we're not doing a good job of quantifying and managing CAT, since this risk is manageable in our view, so active CAT management is, is a thing, I think that not doing that will create a lot of volatility for carriers and for the reinsurers. And I think that over time that will be expected. Just like NatCat is something that there's a lot of focus on, it's modeled, 
you know, there's a lot of discussion. I think that CyberCat is already top of mind. So I think there's going to be a lot more cyber purchases. I think this is going to be de facto the main coverage that any business buys. I think there's need to be more coverage. I think that a lot of businesses are underinsured today because of prices and because of limits. So there's need, will need to be evolution on that. And I think that, you know, active cat management is key to unlocking more capacity coming into the market. Going back to your analogy with NetCat, right? So I think we can learn so much for like, how do you manage aggregation? How do you yep. do a much more data-driven kind of risk analysis? And I think that that's why I found kind of that analogy quite fascinating too, because I, I think it helps think through the evolution of the industry. I think the, the framework that you described about the human in the loop, on the loop, out of the loop, I think it's, it's, it's good food for thought on how to approach cyber underwriting for different segments. Making Risk Flow is brought to you by Zytora. If you enjoy this podcast, consider subscribing to Making Risk Flow in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, so you never miss an episode. To find out more about Zytora, visit Zytora.com. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.